You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. In a ratification convention that took place on December 12, 1787, Pennsylvania became the second state and the first large state to ratify the Constitution of the United States. This was despite the fact that a man named Abraham Lincoln rose to speak out against and voted against making that document the law of the land. This Abraham Lincoln was not, of course, the 16th president, who would assume powers granted by that very document and who would struggle to defend it. He was an obscure county commissioner from Berks County, which was, at least then, in the western part of Pennsylvania, a sparsely populated area. And he was either the posthumous son or the grandson of Mordecai Lincoln, who we do know was President Lincoln's great-great-grandfather. Mordecai had three sons. Among them, John Lincoln, whose son Abraham was a Revolutionary War captain and who was killed by Indians. The Indians nearly got his son Thomas as well, and this would have indeed been tragic for history since Thomas would father a son and named him after his slain father, Abraham. Fortunately, the father of the future president was rescued by his uncle, and it became a story that the president would tell often. But in this moment of U.S. history in 1787, the politically involved member of the Lincoln family feared a strong national government and voted along with 23 other Pennsylvania delegates to the ratification convention, along with the delegates from Washington County near where Pittsburgh is now, Franklin County in the southwest, Lazoon County. But these backcountry delegates were outvoted by the city delegates of Philadelphia, as well as those in the nearby counties, Bucks, Delaware, and Chester, who favored the Federalist position, a strong national government. The importance of Pennsylvania's ratification vote speaks to the importance of Pennsylvania as a state in the politics of the 1780s and 1790s. It was one of the most populated states with a vibrant and growing city in Philadelphia. Philadelphia was the favorite of international travelers. It led in cultural institutions, had libraries, police, watchmen, sanitation, had the best medicine in the U.S., a leading college, and America's greatest celebrity, Ben Franklin. It hosted the convention to develop a plan for the Constitution, which would then be ratified in states across the country. At least in the way the states were set up in 1787, Philadelphia was kind of a middle ground between the population centers of Massachusetts and South Carolina. And with Pennsylvania's approval, serious momentum led to the ratification of the Constitution in several other big states. The federal government was created. And with just a brief stint in New York City, the federal government took Philadelphia as its capital. For 10 years, the president, vice president, Congress, all were in Pennsylvania. American partisan politics began here, at least were perfected here, 
when rivalries between Thomas Jefferson, who was Secretary of State in the Washington administration, and Secretary of Treasury Alexander Hamilton spawned the development of parties. One party for big government, the other for small government. One supportive of the cities and merchants, the others for planters and farmers. One was pro-British, the other pro-French. Presses supporting these parties developed in Philadelphia. Philip Freneau's Gazette of the United States began publishing criticism of Washington's administration and the national government, especially one aspect of it, Alexander Hamilton's growing Treasury Department and the issuing of paper money and banking. Freneau would feature essays authored by Brutus or A Farmer that criticized Hamilton, but that showed the hand of Thomas Jefferson or his cohort James Madison's writing style. Hamilton fired back with a press of his own, John Fennot's National Gazette, which would feature essays from T.L., which pointed out that Fennot's paper was being subsidized by Thomas Jefferson, who was doing his State Department printing in Fennot's shop. In the back country of Pennsylvania, farmers who would produce whiskey and use it to pay debts or make a little extra income were soon subject to a special excise tax that was created by the Secretary of Treasury Hamilton. Farmers resisted, and when federal collectors were sent to obtain the funds, they harassed these collectors and refused to pay. Urged on by Hamilton, President Washington personally led a 13,000-man provisional army into the west of Pennsylvania to demand payment and put down resistance. For the U.S. federal government, the subjugation of the Whiskey Rebellion was a powerful precedent-setter. For the politics of Pennsylvania, the crushing of the rebellion would help to radicalize the backcountry farmers and align them with the new Jeffersonian Republican Party that had formed, which would soon have an impact on the new national government. When the election of 1796 came and President Washington was no longer running, Pennsylvania became an important swing state. Federalists, the party of Hamilton, Washington, and Adams, feeling they had an advantage, capitalized on what they thought was an advantage in Pennsylvania by changing the rules so all the electors, whoever won the statewide election, would get all the electors. They thought this would mean more votes for Adams and to help compete against what they thought would be an advantage for Thomas Jefferson in the South. But the rule change in Pennsylvania created even a more inviting target for Republicans, and they organized, especially in Philadelphia, where they broke up the city into tiny districts and assigned precinct captains and engaged in the new type of Democratic campaigns that Jeffersonian Republicans were fond of. As the capital city, Philadelphia was home to international visitors and diplomats, and so the pro-French Jeffersonian Republicans had an advantage of many influential supporters from that country. On the eve of the 1796 election, the Minister of France issued a document that said that the directory government, this is the post-revolutionary government in France, might attack American shipping to Britain as Britain was attacking or harassing some American shipping going to France. And that if Adams were elected, they probably would engage in this policy. 
it was blatant foreign interference in an American election that was outrageous even then and would certainly not be tolerated now. But it worked. Many Philadelphia merchants who had been pro-Adams and pro-Federalist in their sentiment felt that they should probably elect Jefferson to have less trouble with France. Republicans won Philadelphia, and thus won the state and its electors. Due to a technicality, one vote was for Adams, but it gained 14 votes in the 1796 election for Jefferson. Jefferson was nearly elected as the president to succeed Washington. Thanks to New York and to a few southern coastal districts, which, unlike their in-country brethren, supported the Federalist and Adams, Adams was saved by three votes. But Pennsylvania had made this first contested election in American history very interesting. And it would continue to be interesting in Philadelphia and Pennsylvania. John Adams would replace Washington, taking his oath in Philadelphia. The new capital was still four years away. Jefferson was vice president and used the office to stay involved with political matters, launch newspaper attacks, and incite political developments. A threatened war with a directory government in post-revolution pre-Napoleon France reduced the influence of the Republicans temporarily, the Jeffersonian Republicans, because they had been seen as too French. Though the 1796 election was tight, the Federalists now had an incumbent president in John Adams, and things looked a little better for them. As 1800 and John Adams' re-election approached, he wanted to secure a second term. This year coincided with the year the capital would move from Philadelphia to a swampy estate carved out from the Massachusetts and Virginia Territory called Washington, D.C., after the great American leader who had fallen just a year ago. Adams ordered all federal offices to leave Philadelphia and assume their work in the new capital on June 15th. And with Abigail Adams returning home, John Adams would make his way to Washington. The fastest way to Washington from Philadelphia, then as it is sort of now, would be to go through Delaware and Maryland. But Adams must have had something other than the fastest route on his mind because it made a point of going out west to Lancaster and York and then down through western Maryland to the capital. An important sign that Pennsylvania's votes were very critical in this contest. Although it certainly wasn't billed as such, and although certainly there weren't any campaign events to speak of, it was, prior to the invention of the railroad, an early whistle-stop tour. He also freed the three prisoners from the Whiskey Rebellion, which helped relations a bit with the back country of Pennsylvania. And he set in motion peace with France, despite the objection of the ultra-federalists in his party who wanted war. Adams' move and the abandonment of the winner-take-all system of Pennsylvania politics meant that Adams improved his standing in Pennsylvania, and he won 7 of 15 electors in the presidential election in 1800, an improvement over 1796. Had Aaron Burr not secured New York for Jefferson, and had not an effort in South Carolina to get Federalist votes there failed, Adams would have been re-elected with Pennsylvania's votes. It's interesting now to look at Pennsylvania's history as an early swing state, 
as it is now, for the first time in some time, become a critical state in selecting at least the Democratic nominee for president. This look back may not tell us whether Hillary Clinton or Barack Obama will win the Democratic nomination, but it could be fun. When DeWitt Clinton made a move to steal the presidency away from James Madison with a combination alliance of defectors from Madison's party, the Jeffersonian Republicans, and the remaining Federalists who didn't like Madison's War of 1812 nor its impact on American commerce, the mayor of New York knew that he had his state to support him and most of the Northeast. But he needed Pennsylvania. He chose as his vice presidential candidate Jared Ingersoll. Ingersoll was a 38-year-old at the time of the Constitutional Convention, and as one of the younger members, one of the less known members, he was so humbled by being in the presence of great men that he did not speak. He had prepared a speech, but did not deliver it. When it came time to sign the Constitution, Ingersoll suggested that members sign it not so much as a full endorsement, but just as an acknowledgement that it was probably the best compromise. But the union that document produced had lasted, and now as a man in his 60s, Ingersoll was being asked to be vice president of the nation that that document produced. But despite the presence of a prominent Pennsylvanian on the ticket, DeWitt Clinton could not win over Pennsylvanians. Although James Madison wasn't enormously popular, the war with Britain was among many Pennsylvanians and DeWitt Clinton's stand on that war wasn't clear. Pennsylvania's votes went for the incumbent president, James Madison. Without them, he would not have been reelected. Pennsylvania would remain with Madison and Monroe's party, the vestiges of the Republican Party of Jefferson. When the Jeffersonian Republicans split and Federalist John Quincy Adams faced the outsider Andrew Jackson, Pennsylvania would side with this new insurgent, Jackson, and would vote for him two times more, and then for his successor, Martin Van Buren. Only in 1840, when Whigs would beat Van Buren due to an economic crisis in the country, would Pennsylvania yield and vote for the Whigs. It would then switch back and forth. It would vote for Democrat James Polk, and then for the Whigs when they ran Zachary Taylor in 1848, then back to the Democrats for the next election. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Hello all, Eric Rivenis with the Most Notorious Podcast here. Each week I interview an author or historian about a historical true crime, tragedy, or disaster. Subject matter ranges from gunslingers to Gilded Age murder to gangsters to fires to pirates to wild prison breaks. My guests bring their incredible knowledge directly to you. Please subscribe to Most Notorious on your favorite podcast app. Cheers and have a safe tomorrow. Pennsylvania would vote for its native son, James Buchanan, in the election of 1856. When Republicans met in Chicago in 1860, most likely to nominate William Seward of New York, David Davis 
an Illinois attorney and a good friend of Abraham Lincoln, had a different plan. He worked the delegates. He knew there was sentiment for someone other than Seward. There were people in New York who were rivals of Seward. Then there were Westerners who wanted a candidate from the West. Davis worked the crowd. The Pennsylvania delegates were his special target. He knew that with some Western states, like Indiana, Minnesota, Wisconsin, Illinois, that he had, plus Pennsylvania, some of the anti-Seward New Yorkers, he could put Lincoln over the top. The Pennsylvania delegates knew that Lincoln wasn't the favorite to win. They knew they could ask for something big, and they did. Could their governor, Simon Cameron, get a cabinet post? Cameron was a Republican boss in Pennsylvania, and he ran a mighty machine, and there were rumors that he was corrupt. Yes, Davis said, it could be done. Are you sure, they asked. Yes, Davis said, Lincoln will ratify it. From all available evidence, Davis was lying to the Pennsylvania delegation. Lincoln had told him not to trade anything for delegates. Davis did, and in any case, Simon Cameron did become Secretary of War, a job that he would fail miserably at and would be replaced by Edwin Stanton, a more capable anti-succession war Democrat who had been in Buchanan's administration. Pennsylvania would remain a solid Republican state for half a century and more. Even when Grover Cleveland broke the Republican stranglehold in the United States in 1884, Pennsylvania voted for Blaine. In 1888 and 1892, Pennsylvania stayed with the Republicans. Pennsylvania resisted the charisma of Bryan and voted for McKinley, then Teddy Roosevelt, then Taft. He would, they would vote for Teddy Roosevelt again in the tumultuous election of 1912. Woodrow Wilson would not win them over in 1916. The state voted for the Republican candidate Hughes. It would not be until 1932 when the state would vote Democrat, help to elect Franklin Roosevelt. And then it would reliably so, though Eisenhower won the state over. But it went for Kennedy in 1960, Humphrey in 1968, Carter in 76, and then Reagan in 1980. The state was last won by Republicans in 1988, when George Bush Sr. beat Michael Dukakis there. Though his son made a pretty good contest for Pennsylvania's vote in 2000 and 2004, the state has been Democrat since. In primaries, the state has last had an important impact when Carter's win in Pennsylvania in 1976 proved that he, as a Southerner, could win a Northeast industrial state. Since then, the Pennsylvania primary has been a little too late to count. But in this strange year, its April primary will be critical. In fact, it may even decide the nomination. It may even decide the 2008 nomination for Democrats. As Hillary and Barack battle in the headlines and over various fronts, an endorsement here, a caucus there, Pennsylvania is the next big state and it will set up, and it could set up to be the decider. Everything else is close. The race for superdelegates, the number of states won, the popular vote, the delegate count. So a win here 
could make either candidacy's case to be the nominee. Many look at the Michigan and the Florida controversies, whether those states' delegates should be should go to the convention and vote, as what will determine the contest. But I believe that the Pennsylvania primary will determine how those states will be handled because it will provide a crucial endorsement to the winner in either case. That Pennsylvania would be so important in determining any election would not be a surprise to an American citizen in the late 18th or early 19th century. With History Beating Up Politics, I'm Bruce Carlson. I want to thank you for listening. The website is myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. Interested in comments or any suggestions for new topics that you might have. Some topics that I plan to do will include the effect of the economy on presidential elections. That may be the next podcast, Do People Vote the Pocketbook? U.S. and Russia relations, brokered conventions. There exists the possibility that we might see one on the Democratic side this year, and many people will be wondering how that works. It's been a while since we've had one of those. With the Supreme Court looking at guns, perhaps ruling on the Second Amendment, it'll be an interesting time to look at guns in America. A history of gun control is an issue. There's really so much going on in the world, it's hard to pick. With the possibility of an economic crash, I'd like to take a look at 1929 and today, and 1873 and 1893 and uh, 1819 and other panics that have existed in the U.S. and today, but particularly at 1929 as it's the most relevant example of a crash. And we don't really have one particular crash here yet, but obviously there's a lot of bad indicators on the economic horizon. It'd be interesting to see a contrast because one difference right off the top uh, that you notice is that the government is being more active here than it was in 1929. And the government's being active not so much through the president or the executive offices, but through the entity that the Congress has designated the printing on money and other functions, the Federal Reserve. It'll be interesting to see what the impact of that is. Does this shorten the economic crisis? Does it prevent it? Uh, So this may become only a talked-about crisis instead of a real crisis. It'll be interesting to see, or does this have no effect? The stimulus package and the action of the Fed and other things have no effect, leading one to conclude that whether the government acts or not act, the economics are going to work themselves out. We'll take a look at that down the line. Website is myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.